Hey guys, my name is Danielle and you are listening to All Stitched Up, Words to Love By. All right, everybody, we're back to Overcome Word of the Week, Episode 5. I do believe in the old saying, what does not kill you makes you stronger. Or our experiences, good and bad, make us who we are. By overcoming difficulties, we gain strength and maturity. That's a quote by Angelina Jolie. So my husband did that because he's saying that my quote reading is very boring. Yeah. So <laughs> he's sitting across from me and I make him put earmuffs on so he doesn't listen to me. But, but I still listen. apparently he still listens and he tells me when I'm being boring and so that I need to be more exciting for my audience. So here I am being more exciting for my audience. Okay. Good job. Thanks, guys, for coming back to episode five. And um, our word of the week is overcome. And this word was brought to you by about two weeks ago. Uh, two? Yeah, two weeks ago. We were at one of my daughter's softball games. And my husband, who you just heard from, told me that um, I needed to pitch to my daughter Instead of just having a pitching machine pitch at her, we, I needed to actually physically pitch to her because I was a pitcher when I was younger. And um, my response to that was, I don't want her to hit me. And he kind of laughed. And I, in, in that moment, I remembered an um, incident that happened to me when I was in sixth grade and I was pitching. Um, and ever since that incident, I have been somewhat frightened of the ball, but I still continue to play softball. Um, so what happened was I was pitching, um, and one of the best hitters, I mean, in the league at that age, got up to bat and she swung the bat and she nailed the ball. And my reflexes were not as fast as her, her hit. And, um, the ball nailed me like right in the face on my right eye. It just hit me. Um, I fell to the floor and, Immediately, I started checking the ground for my teeth because I couldn't feel them. Um, I remember my mom coming out to the field and like asking me if I was okay and trying to. F and I, she, she saw me like looking on the floor for my teeth, and I and she was like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Where are my teeth?" And she she reassured me that they were still in my mouth, attached to my gums. Um, but I ended up having to go to the emergency room, leaving the game, and um, my right cheekbone was completely shattered. Um, it thankfully it didn't do more damage. It could have been, you know, slightly over to the right a little bit more and hit my temple. It could have hit my eye socket and done serious damage. It could have it could have been a lot worse, but um, it broke my cheekbone. And of course, there's nothing that they can do about that, so they can't put my face in a mask and, or a cast. So. Um, I just had to let it heal, but it was probably a six to eight week um, healing process um, for about two, well, probably like three, two or three weeks. I had a black eye that was swollen shut. My cheek was super swollen, like almost like chip, chipmunk status. Um, and I had, um, I just had to wear like a hood over my head because I was just super embarrassed by 
the way that I my face looked. And I really wish that I would have taken a picture of it when I was um, at in that moment. But I think that I was super embarrassed and didn't want to. So that's why there's no pictures. But I did um, have to um, deal with a black eye for about probably two months. And so uh, thankfully, when it first happened, I was on spring break. So I didn't have to go to school until the swelling had gone down. But it was pretty pretty frightening to look at. So, um, but I, that was my first time, the first, one of the things that I really remember overcoming because it was a, um, it was a hard thing to get back out there and decide to continue pitching because I would, like I said, I was terrified of the ball after that. Um, but I continued to keep pitching and, there was probably in the league that I was in, there was a couple times that we played the same team over and over. And so probably like four or five weeks later, I played the same team of the girl who hit me. And I remember getting up to, to pitch to her. And every time a girl would even like go to swing the bat, I would throw my glove in front of my face or I would like just bury my face. And I even remember one time there was, um, a pop fly, like super high. And it went so high into like almost the lights. It was a night game. And I walked away from it and just let it hit the floor because I did not want to get hit with it. So um, that's how frightened I was of the ball at that point. But I got up to pitch against this, this batter. And I remember everyone in the league knew what had happened to me. So there was a huge crowd of people watching this entire um this entire game because they, you know, wanted to see how it was going to play out. And so the girl gets up to bat and I pitch to her. And of course, every single time that she swings, I'm like covering my face and ducking and um, just my reflexes were like heightened big time. And so she gets up strike one and then um, I hit strike two and then um the last pitch was a strike and it was strike three. And I felt kind of bad because everybody in the stands was cheering for me because I had struck her out. And I felt kind of bad because that's not cool um, for the girl, but I'm pretty sure she understood. Hopefully she understood. But I remember that feeling of just like, wow, like I did it. Like I struck out like the girl who destroyed my face and, um, and it was really, uh, um, an exciting feeling. And I was, I felt very proud of myself for overcoming it. And I continued to pitch that was in sixth grade. And I continued to pitch all the way through high school. And, um, but my reflexes were, I was definitely afraid of the ball and I could have probably been a little bit better of a player had I not been so afraid of the ball, but, um, I was proud of myself for sticking it out and, and overcoming that fear. And so when my, my husband said I should pitch to my daughter, she's only 10, but I'm like, well, it only takes one time for her to just hit the ball the right way and, you know, break the other side of my face. So I still to this day have numbing on that side of my face. I can't feel it. So there's definitely nerve damage. And um, when I got my nose pierced when I was 18 on that side, I didn't feel anything because the nerves are totally messed up. So, but, so that's the backstory to how I got the word overcome. And as I was thinking of other ways to what to talk about for the word overcome, I was reminded that I was approaching my 
two year anniversary of my open heart surgery. And, um, that surgery was probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through because, um, I had already gone through previous surgeries where it didn't go so well. And I already had dodged death about three times. And so I just remember always asking God, like, how many lives do I actually have? And is this surgery actually going to be a success? Am I going to need another surgery? And how long will this last? And I still don't know that answer. I'm two years out and anything could happen at any given time. But the surgery was a very huge success. But I had to overcome the months and the weeks leading up into that, just getting out of my own head. And then I had to, once the surgery was done, I had to get through the next couple of months of just the pain that came with all of um, that entails, you know, you're getting your chest and your ribs broken open. And um, I'm not going to lie, it was probably the most painful thing that I have ever um, experienced. And I don't wish open heart surgery on anybody because it's not fun. But I'm sure that that's a given. Even if you've never had it before, you just know that it's not a fun thing to go through. So when I got to the five-month mark of me um, post-open heart surgery, I felt like I needed to get off the pain meds that I was on and um, just start trying to heal my body um, a more natural way. And after a few weeks of struggle, I was able to do that. But I really felt like I'd overcome probably the biggest obstacle in my life because even though I went into cardiac arrest when I was 13, um, I didn't see it coming. So I think that sometimes when you don't see trauma coming, it's a little bit, it's obviously easier to deal with because it's not something that you're anticipating or overthinking. Um, it was still a hard recovery, but I was 13 and I think that I just wasn't aware of what was going on as much as I do now. And when I did have the surgery, I had, I have two kids. And so there was a little bit more, um, a lot more at stake actually that I was just like, I can't, I can't leave my kids. And it was just, uh, it was a really difficult thing for me for the months following up or leading up into the surgery. And so when um, I was able to overcome it and then I was able to start on my health journey after, I felt pretty successful that, um, you know, I had done this and I was getting healthy. I was getting my body healthy and back in shape and I was just taking control over my health. And um, it was probably a couple of months ago that I started to realize that my physical um, body was doing really well and I was the healthiest I'd ever been. But emotionally, I felt super um, out of like sorts. And it was becoming something that I started questioning, like, when, when am I going to die? Like, this is too good to be true that like, I'm actually, you know, healthy for this long of a time. And just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. And I, I just know that I, I carry like almost like a fight or flight mentality with me all the time because I feel like nothing has ever been smooth sailing for an entire year, whether it be my health or in my marriage or just with my family. And so 
I'm always waiting for something to happen um, just because of all the traumatic events that have happened in my life. And so when I started to realize that I was um, felt a little bit like I was losing my mind and like I was not myself and I felt like I was kind of getting into a depression almost and just didn't really know what what it was that was going on with me. And then um, when I realized that I couldn't keep holding things in and that I needed help, like I needed to see somebody that could help me and walk me through this. And I needed somebody that was a professional. Like I have a ton of people that are in my life who love God and, you know, I go to church with and I get prayer and I have a ton of girlfriends who support me and love me to the very best of their ability. But sometimes when you've gone through um, a lot of trauma, you need somebody that has has education and knowledge in that area. And so I really was just seeking somebody. And my um, friend, Kathy, just led me to the right person. And so I started therapy with her because um, I just, I knew that this was not something that I could just get through on my own. And I didn't expect other people to put that much time into, um, into me, my health, because I, I feel like I've already exhausted a lot of my friends and family because I have been a little bit of, I wouldn't say a burden, but I've been a kind of a stress on other people because, you know, there's been so many things that have gone wrong and with my health that, um, I just needed to find someone that was not, um, associated with me and was educated and able to give me the help that I needed. So I started therapy last week with, um, this amazing woman and she really, even, um, just telling her all the things that I've gone through and not just with my body trauma, but there's been other things that I've, that have come up in my life, um, with just my marriage. And like I said, with other family members and, you know, just even being a mom and my son's, um, starting his life out a little bit, um, rough with being separated from him for like 30 hours and, and just the trauma that came with that separation between him and I. So there's a lot of things that I, I think have happened to me. And then later on, I realized like, oh, that's something that probably needs to be addressed because we just pile it on top of itself. Like, oh, we just pile on top of things and things get covered up. And um, I think that therapy gets a really bad, um, reputation because they, people think that if you need therapy, that there's something wrong with you or that you are a crazy person. And, um, I think that that's an awful way to look at it because we all are, um, human and we all make mistakes and people around us make mistakes and life has its problems. And so when we hit adversity or difficulties in life, um, the only way for us to get past them is to overcome them, right? And so there's so many ty- there's so many different types of trauma, and there's so many different ways that we can handle it and process it. But if we're not, um, if we don't go after it on a regular basis beyond just the overcoming part, then we're not really overcoming it. So what I mean by that is 
when you had, when I had open heart surgery, I overcame that and it was something that was super scary and I came out on the other side of it. However, it didn't stop there because now I'm recognizing the emotional strain it's had on my body. And so in order for me to continue to overcome it, I have to do the work and I have to talk to somebody and I have to do the healing to go along with it. I can't just pretend that it never happened because it it did happen. And it's not something that we can just, you know, put in the back of our memory because even though it's not in our forefront of our mind, our bodies remember it. And so the therapist um, decided to um, do a um, emotional desensitization called EMDR, and it's called um, emotional. It's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I think I said it backwards um, many times. I was saying EDMR, but it's EM. DR, so eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Um, it's a form of psychotherapy that was um, created by Francine Shapiro in 1990s. And um, it basically stimulates our brain's natural ability to process life events so that we can let go of the emotional distress connected to our past. Um, it's a, um, we, what they do is they, help you recall distressing images, and then they use a side-to-side eye movement to help um, almost retrain your brain to um, be able to handle the traumas that you've gone through in a more positive way so that you don't feel like every time there's a similar um, situation that comes up that's kind of close to the trauma, that your body doesn't like immediately resort to fight-or-flight mode. And so that's something that is... um, is super important for our brains because when you have when you have one trauma and you don't deal with it and then you have another trauma and then you have another trauma it just gets super packed like stacked up in you and um, then you feel like you're in a constant fight or flight mode and that is exactly how I've been the last probably 30 years or 30 four years because I had open heart surgery at a year and a half. So I have like boxing gloves on ready to fight the next thing that comes at me um, at every any given moment. And that is not a way to live because it is not a peaceful way to live. And I know that um, life is not always just going to be peaceful. But I think if we can learn how to uh, retrain our minds to not be in fight or flight mode for every situation that we feel triggered... Um, we, because we can't control situations that are going to come our way, but we can definitely control our emotions and how we react to them. And I think that that's something that I really have struggled with is my reaction to things. Um, for instance, last week when my son Gunner was, I had to take him to the emergency room because he was not feeling well for He was home from school for two weeks. Um, It started off with just a cough. And I was, I thought originally it it came from him eating dairy, which his coughs usually do. He gets like super phlegmy and just, it creates a cough in him. And it always has since he was a really young kid. And we, uh, we discovered when he was really young that he was allergic to dairy. 
So we try to keep him away from dairy, but occasionally he gets a hold of it. And occasionally he gets pneumonia, bronchitis, all, you know, all the respiratory things. And so it started, um, he had a grilled cheese sandwich on Friday. The following Saturday, he played football in the rain for a couple hours. He was soaking wet. And my husband thinks that it's a like a Hispanic myth thing that if you play in the rain or you get your feet wet or you're you're, you get yourself cold that you're going to catch a cold or you're going to get sick. And I still stand by it because every time that one of my kids has an, a suppressed immune system and they get cold or they get wet from the rain, they end up sick. So he's giving me the eye like you're crazy woman and you can have your own beliefs, but I have a history of, of that with that's that Mexican witchcraft. (laughs) Stop it. See, this is why he needs earmuffs, and he's still not covering. Well, talking crazy, I can hear you. Because <laughs> you speak crazy, it takes one to know one. So, um, so, anyways, Gunner ended up sick that following Monday. Um, he came to me Monday night and said, "Mom, I don't feel good. I feel like I'm getting sick." And I was like, "Okay, well, you need to get in bed." And um, I did my crazy essential oil like voodoo that people think it is, but I swear by them. Um, and, but that they didn't help in that like a situation. So, well, actually I didn't even put them on him that night. I actually forgot. That was my problem. I forgot to put them on him. The next day I get a call from his school at nine 30 in the morning that Gunner doesn't feel good. So I went and picked him up and sure enough, he did not look like he felt, felt very good. And so I just thought, okay, he'll come home and he'll sleep for, a, you know, a couple hours and he'll be better by tomorrow. Well, the next day didn't get any better. The cough got progressively worse. And thankfully, he had an appointment already scheduled with one of um, our doctors for some other stuff that he's been needing um, treatment for. And she was able to assess him and put him on some some supplements and stuff to help him get better. Um, but eventually the... Um, the cough started to fade away, but his fatigue and everything was not going away. And so it was actually starting to really worry me because um, he had started feeling better. And I thought for sure by Monday, he would be good enough to go to school. So he at that point, he'd already been out of school for a week. And so um, Monday, the following Monday, I got him up and he said, you need to go to school. And he's like, I still don't feel good. I said, well, you don't have a fever. You haven't had a fever. You've gotten plenty of rest. Your cough is not as bad anymore. You need to go to school. So he went to school. And sure enough, at 930, I get a call from his school saying that he was still not feeling better, that he was not ready to be back at school. He was falling asleep in class and he was still coughing. And so I went and picked him up and um, brought him home at 10 o'clock in the morning and he slept till four and then he woke up for a little while and then he slept all the way through the night and then he slept a little bit more the next day and the next day so by Wednesday um in the middle of the day I was just like okay I couldn't I had called his doctor's office several times but because everybody's sick right now and everyone's afraid of the coronavirus. Um, It was almost impossible for me to get in with his doctor, his primary doctor. So 
I just decided that I was going to take him to urgent care to be checked. And so I took him into urgent care and um, they asked what was going on. And at that point, I was a little concerned because his cough had subsided quite a bit, but he was still really tired. And the week before my cardiac arrest, I stayed home from school and was super tired for like four days straight and slept nonstop. And then I went to school that Friday and that's when I went into cardiac arrest. So I don't know if you guys can hear my French bulldog, but she's super loud. So I'm sorry if that's distracting. Maybe you can't even hear her. But, um, so I decided to take him in because I was just – I was concerned because what my heart condition is genetic. And um, he's, thir- he's 12 years old, almost 13. And I was 13 when I went into cardiac arrest. And it was very – much due to hormonal changes and stuff in my body. And so I just, um, I, I think because of my trauma of my past and what happened to me, I was super, um, my anxiety and the whole situation was, was super high. And I even told, you know, the, the teachers at his school that like, I'm not, I need to figure out what's going on with him before I let him go to school because I don't want anything to happen. And so, I took him to, and when I got to urgent care, they asked what was going on. And I said, well, he has a cough, but he's also really tired. And I have this cardiac history and I just, can you guys do an EKG and see what's, how his heart looks? And so they um, were, they agreed to doing it because of my, my condition. And so then um, she listened to his lungs and she said, his lungs sound really good. Like he doesn't seem like there's anything going on in there. So I don't think we need to do an x-ray or anything. And I was like, okay, well the EKG will work. And then she told me, then she heard him cough and she's like, you know what, let's just do an x-ray really quick just to make sure. And so I, um, went over, had an x-ray, came back. And, um, when she came in, she said, his lungs look great. Like everything's clear, but we found a, um, right-sided aortic arch, um, which that is supposed to be on the left side normally, but, it was on the right side. And of course, immediately I'm like, what does that even mean? And they didn't, they were just, the only thing that they could say to me was you need to get him in to see a cardiologist as soon as possible. And so of course I'm like, okay, does that mean like now, like I should go take him to the emergency room or does that mean like he's good to, for a couple more days? I still didn't want to send him to school. So the very next day I called over to his, um, his primary doctor. And although they were still busy, because now it's considered a heart issue, they saw him right away. And so um, then they got the referral to Children's Hospital um, to see a cardiologist. But the, then I, when I called after the authorization, everything went through with my insurance, they said, oh, we can see him on May 1st. And I was like, no, that's not going to work for me because I'm not feeling comfortable with sending him to school until I know that what's going on with him is not a heart issue. Especially because after I Googled right-sided aortic arch, which I've talked about Google, but I still use it like it's my freaking doctor and I shouldn't. But I I checked in one of the underlying um, causes of right-sided aortic arch is tritology of flow, which is what I have. So, um, that of course got my head spinning even more. And 
I um, needed him to, to be seen as soon as possible. So May 1st wasn't going to cut it for me. So I decided on Friday when he was still super tired and lethargic that he needed to go to the emergency room. So I took him to the ER at Children's and um, they um, checked his heart rate and everything and his heart was all over the place. Um, it was super low when he was laying down and then as soon as he would get up, it would like race up to like super high. And so, of course, they were like, we probably need to make sure that he's um, he's dehydrated or he's he's hydrated and his electrolytes aren't off because that could be the reason why he's his heart's all over the place. And um, so I they gave him an IV, which that was another thing. Gunner is extremely afraid of needles, and you would have thought that I was like preparing to murder the child <laughs> when we were getting ready for him to get his IV. And I felt my heart was so sad, but at the same time, the only thing that I can do is laugh at some point because I'm like, dude, you're seriously afraid of a tiny needle. Like it, it's going to be okay. But honestly, if you don't get better, like there's going to be worse than a tiny needle like happening to you. So we need to just get this IV in you. So it took three nurses, like a pain therapist, specialist lady and myself um, to get him to calm down enough to get the IV in. And so um, he had that done and had the IV. And he, I was very proud of him because I said, see, it wasn't that bad. He's like, yes, it was. I'm like, no, it was not that bad. Like, it's not as bad as you had it made up in your head. And he agreed. He's like, you're right. It wasn't as bad, but it still wasn't something that I would want to do again. And I'm like, I don't blame you. Nobody likes getting poked with the needle. Um, unless you're getting a tattoo, then of course, poke me all you want. But uh, so he decided that um, he needed to control his heart rate because they told him if you don't, um, if your heart rate doesn't subside after you get these IV fluids, then we're probably going to have to poke you again to get to draw labs to see if there's an, something else going on. So he's like staring at the machine and he's figuring out ways that his heart rate can like stabilize and what causes it to go high and what causes it to go low. And he keeps asking questions like, how can I, how, what can I do to like stabilize my heart? Do I need to be like in this position? Should I lay down? Should I stop coughing? Should I, and I'm just like, you can't control your heart rate if you are actually like having an issue. So, um, so that he was, but I told him that I was proud of him and that he overcame his fear of needles and, um, and, so then when he, um, they came back in to check his heart rate again, it was, had, had stabilized and they were, um, able to send us home and discharge us, but still recommended that we get that, um, right-sided aortic arch checked out, um, with the cardiologist. And so I decided to keep that appointment. Um, but I felt a lot better because his, energy and just everything about him perked up afterwards. Like he was spinning in the, on the doctor's stool. He was throwing a ball against the wall. He could not wait to get out of there, um, because he was hungry and he hadn't really mentioned that he was too hungry, like prior to that. And so I was just super like excited that he was, um, feeling better, but at the same time he was starting to bug me because I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And you know, they, it takes a long time for them to discharge you. So 
but I, d- I definitely noticed that my anxiety and my panic level was way more high um, when it was when it came to stuff. Like I was getting frustrated with him because he didn't want to do certain things. And so I I was talking to my therapist today, and I now realize that the reason I I fight so hard for my kids to take their supplements and to eat healthy, which they do neither of those things, and it's a daily battle. Um, that it's because I feel like I have control over or I want to have control over their health because my health has been such a struggle that I don't want them to suffer the same way that I suffered. But I realize that what it's doing is it's creating, creating chaos in my house. And so that's something that I, I'm excited that now I can work through is my own trauma and deal with that so that I don't project that on my kids because whenever one of my kids does get sick, I go into fight or flight mode and I freak out and I like want to like shove everything down their their throat to like get them healthy again. But sometimes I just have to let the process work itself out. I have to constantly remind uh, myself that my trauma is not their trauma. And by me putting my trauma on them, I'm creating more trauma for them. And so um, I have to be a little bit more... Um, choosy with what my battles are. And, um, I've heard, you know, the quote more is caught than taught. And so like, I just have to be that example of them to them of what healthy living looks like and not try to like force it down their throats to like make them be something that at 12 and 10, they're like, they don't need to really worry about too much. Like it's something that they should be aware of, but I don't need to like make them do all the things that I do to keep myself healthy because they're not me. And so I do have to work a little bit harder to keep myself healthy and my immune system strong because I have heart condition, but that's not who they are and that's not what I need to project on them. And so that was a really cool thing that I figured out today. Like, whoa, like I need to stop controlling my kids' nutrition. Like that is a serious issue I have And, um, it's because it's something I'm passionate about, but it doesn't matter. Like God's in control of these kids and I can only guide them as much as I can and not create chaos in my house to get my way because of my trauma and my hurts. So, um, anyways, along with all of that, I just, um, again, I want to go back to the idea that therapy is, um, not, a good thing. And if you've ever had someone tell you that you need therapy and you've gotten offended by it, um, it's not something that should be offensive at all. It's something that is helpful and, um, it just helps us to be, um, able to handle things, um, a little bit better when things come at us in life. And it's something that I think too many people, shy away from number one, because it has a stigma around it, that it's a negative thing. But number two, it's, it is expensive. It's definitely an expensive thing. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm not paying a pretty penny for it because I am like, there's a lot of things that I'm willing to sacrifice out of my daily life, um, to pay for this because I feel like I'm investing in my future. I feel like I'm investing in my kid's future. And so it's something that I need to talk to my insurance to see if they'll cover it. But it's something that is going to be worth it in the long run. Just like, um, just like if you need, you know, to have 
a surgery or you go through cancer, like it's worth it to pay the money to get through that and come out on the other side than to just be like, oh, I can't afford that and just let your life fall apart. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people see physical um, things and they think, oh, I need to get help for that right away. But just because you can't see mental health or or you can't see um, visually see that somebody is hurting from trauma or PTSD, um, I think it makes it a little bit harder for people to understand that that's still an injury to your body that needs to be taken care of. And so, um, so overcoming in a nutshell um, is something that I feel um, like it's great to get to that point of where you're like, oh, I overcame that battle and I'm so excited. But once you overcome that battle, you can't just dismiss it like it never happened. You have to continue to um, overcome that battle by taking it head on and saying, okay, now that the physical battle of it is over, what is the emotional and mental battle of that look like? And what has it done to me? And what kind of things has it created in me to make me less of the person that I used to be? Um, Because that's where I feel like I got to that point of where I was not the same person. And I didn't like that. Um, I wanted to be a happy, like joyful person. I felt like little by little, my joy was getting less and less and it was getting more and more dim. So um, with that, the um, the flower essence of the week will be um, Star of Bethlehem and my kids will take over on that. What did I tell you you were going to do on my podcast? Oh, oh. our day. No, no, do that. The box flowers. Mm-hmm. Do the what? The box flower. It's a box flower. No idea what a box flower is. Really? Box flower? Flower essences are exquisitely refined herbal infusions, acting as nature's liquid messengers of inner health and harmony. They are highly effective, non-toxic herbal preparations that address core issues of wellness, especially emotions, stress, mental attitudes, spiritual values, and life purposes. And life purpose. Bringing balance in these areas is a major factor in developing sound mind body health. These essences can be employed in a variety of contexts, from home health care to professional practice. This week's flower essence to go with the word overcome is Star of Bethlehem. Patterns of imbalance. Shock or trauma, either recent or from a past experience. Need for healing and comfort from the spiritual world. Positive qualities. Unity with deepest part of the self. Sense of inner divinity and wholeness. Words of affirmation. Star of Bethlehem. I feel calmed and soothed. I am free, I am free of the influence of past trauma. Well, that's a wrap for episode five on the word overcome. 
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. So uh, thank you guys for joining me on episode five. I hope that um, my topic today was helpful to you. Um, Of course, as always, I would love some more feedback. Um, And I hope to see you back next week on our word, sorry.